we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. Why did I say it like that? I don't know. I feel um, like you, you should I'm say losing. your... You have to say your name in a funny voice now, too. Uh, no, I can't do that. Oh, come No, I can't do that. I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Sequoia Kennedy. I did, I did it for you. <laughs> no, I'm Sequoia Kennedy. There you go. <laughs> okay. There we go. Oh, God. Well, we're all going to be sounding a little more like that mm-hmm. after this episode. Yeah. I've been going a little fucking crazy. Yeah, we're, we're losing it. I'm losing it a bit. We are continuing the story of Jack Parsons, John Whiteside Parsons. And it's about to get real, real weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's kooky. about to get real. It's about to get real, real fucking kooky. And cool. And this chapter is one of those things that you just can't really fucking comprehend that it happened. People involved. Oh boy! The it's it's a time and place. It's a time and place, man. Okay. You know. <laughs> so, you know, let's do our tarot pull and just get right into it. Get in the time machine weird, and go. Yeah, we got a lot of weird shit to talk about. All right, what do we got? Oh, this one showed up recently. Nine of Cups. Ah, happiness. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting again. This one's an interesting card whenever it shows up. Also in correspondence with the Three of Swords. Three of Swords. Queen of Cups. Queen of Cups and now the Nine of Cups. That's a story. It's a story. It's a story. Uh, I'm not sure. We're going to have to wait till the end to really see if it's a narrative, if it's a, yeah. if it's a portrait or something. I don't know. Can't make any judgments on it yet. Mm-hmm. And we'll say each of these cards we've pulled doesn't necessarily refer to the episode that it's pulled on. We're doing a, a terror spread over a course of a series. Yes. We're, we're pioneers in radio terror writing <laughs> for dead people cooler than us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. I'm pretty cool. You are pretty cool. You're pretty cool, too. Yeah. I don't know if I'm Jack Parsons cool. You you didn't invent rockets. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the whole, everything else, <laughs> you know, who can say Pales who's in cooler comparison. or not, but yeah. dude invented the fucking rocket. That's true. He, we don't like, have that. And actually, I do want to stress that before this, before we start this episode. When last we left off, Jack had been unceremoniously forced to sell his stock in the Aerojet Corporation and had to leave JPL because he didn't have the fucking fancy piece of paper. He didn't have the diploma. He wasn't a real scientist. And he was also, you know, hitting on the secretaries, inviting him to the sex parties at the Parson Engine, doing a bunch of drugs, coming in, smelling like shit, and uh, just generally being a jackass. There was also that. Yeah. But, you know. Not going to fly. Yeah. You just, you know. Yeah, the military. Although it did fly straight into space. Straight into fucking space. Yeah. But just keep in the back of your head while we go through this that this motherfucker did just invent in a moment of fucking genius the rocket fuel 
that is the ancestor, like the direct ancestor to the fuel we still use to send big ass rockets into space. Yeah. When you've seen videos of like the Apollo missions launching. Grandma rocket. Yeah. It's grandma rocket. Yeah. Which could be another name for the goddess Babylon. realistically. <laughs> um, but like when you see the videos of those fucking rockets and shit, that's the type of fuel that Jack Parsons invented. That family of fuel. Solid fuel. It did some really hard shit. Yes. Mm. Solid rocket fuel. And I need you to keep that in your head to counterbalance the rest of the stuff. All right. right. Locked in. In my head. So. In your head. In my head. In their head. Jack's in everybody's head. Yes. That's what he does. So. After Jack and Ed got unceremoniously kicked out of this shit that they had worked really, really hard to build, they founded the Ad Astra Engineering Company. Mm -hmm. They were like, you know, they said something like. Like that movie. Ad Astra. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a. I think like NASA astronauts took that as their motto or something. I didn't see it, but doesn't like Brad Pitt fight a monkey in space or something or Leonardo DiCaprio? There's a monkey that (laughs) is fought in space, I think. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they said something like, ah, it doesn't matter. Like rockets are, they're just a fad, you know, which is like, boys, who are you trying to kid? Yeah. Them yourselves. Who are you you lying to, boys? Yourselves to them. They're like, we're going to start a laundromat company, a chain of laundromats. I think they were really sad. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't start a laundromat chain. They started something called the Ad Astra Engineering Company, which was basically an agreement that any money they made on their different businesses, you know, Ed's mechanic business and Jack's uh, powder company that he was going to start, like his own explosives company called the Vulcan Powder Company. They'd pull it together under this holding company and then eventually they'd have enough money to build their own fucking rockets and show them what's what. Right. Mm-hmm. They were still committed to space travel and shit. At least that's ostensibly. Ad Astra to the, to the stars. Yes. Ad Astra to the stars. Is it, uh, that's also um, Tom DeLonge's fucking. Yeah. Well, shit I, I'm pretty sure. It's, stars Academy. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure Ad Astra, Ad Astra per aspera, um, NASA astronauts like, Grabbed that from Jack and Ed. Uh-huh. Uh, through rough ways to the stars. It's a fucking good motto. Yeah? Yeah. Hell yeah. But like, even though Jack and Ed were probably definitely at least a bit miffed about getting kicked out of this shit, they were still having a ton of fucking fun. Like, this was peak parsonage. The parsonage. Wilford and Helen had been living on the turkey farm in the desert. And Jack now decides to open up the rest of the rooms in the parsonage, that big old mansion on Orange Grove Avi bought. Uh, to not just OTO members, but other groovy people around LA. Artists. Yeah, everybody come on in. Let's party. That's the best time to do it is when you're sorted down, you just got, you know, yeah. kicked out of something. Uh, time to party, man. Fuck yeah. One of the residents there, uh, Alva Rogers, wrote that in the ads placed in the local paper, Jack specified that only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types need to apply for rooms. Any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So don't show up here being normal. No, you're not allowed. Uh, You had occultists fucking hanging out with, playing cards with nuclear physicists in one room. Sweet. You had fucking rocket scientists having breakfast with sci-fi writers. Yeah, it was fucking really cool. And so it wasn't just like OTO shit either. Like they did have a grab temple bag. there, but like it was just a groovy ass fucking mansion mm-hmm. in the 40s. 
which is pretty early to have a groovy ass mansion in Pasadena. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack was still financially supporting Wilfred Smith and Helen. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting of him to do. It, they were all friends. They were Yeah, I know, but you know, to support I yeah, no, I know. You know, this couple remember again, everybody else around ex wife. Yeah. Remember, everyone else around Jack thinks Wilfred Smith is a fucking snake. I guess it's like alimony. It is but it's not even his kid. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> Wilfred's kid. Right, but still. For whatever reason, he was still financially supporting him. And then he uh I guess he can afford to, so why not? Yeah. And then he just ignored Crowley and just moved him back to the parsonage. Wilfred hmm. Allen. Having a grand old time. Yeah. And Wilfred did not have 666 tattooed on his forehead. 666 tattooed on his forehead. Fuck you, Crowley. (laughs) It's still the funniest thing to me. It's, yeah. You're going to have to. I went went and I read that letter, by the way. (laughs) It was really good. It's really long, too. (laughs) (laughs) He put time and an effort into that. Is it Lieber 132? You know, a weaker man could probably be persuaded. (laughs) I love Crowley's writing. Yeah. He's so fucking shitty and snarky Mm -hmm. all the time. He's he's so so fucking bitchy in the funniest way sometimes. His voice is even bitchy, too. His voice is stupid. (laughs) It's just dumb. I hate it. That's that's the two sides of Crowley too, though. It's yeah. voice in his writing. You know who he was as a person, who he was as a magician, the great you know? beast, Tomegatherion. Yeah, yeah, fucking nerd. <laughs> anyway, uh, Betty and Jack were still together, and the relationship seemed shatterproof. Like they were, they, everyone was like, "Oh yeah, these guys are meant for each other." But Betty was a fucking bastard. Uh remember this is Helen's. Sister. Half-sister, younger half-sister. Uh, Jack started dating her when she was 17, and he in his mid or late 20s, something like that. Yeah, and Betty was a fucking bastard. And even, like, Jack was still trying to have, like, the OTO meetings at the Parsonage and shit. And Betty would just fucking do everything in her power to disrupt those meetings. Why, Betty? Because she fucking could. Because she could. I love her. <laughs> She's evil. Yeah, that's why I love her. <laughs> oh, don't, don't love Betty. <laughs> Uh, you know, you gotta have someone to sow the drama, to stir the pot. Yeah. No, she's not even doing that. She's just, just not letting a- the meetings happen. <laughs> she's going to the bar with friends, and then she keeps calling the parsonage and asking to talk to different people. <laughs> As they're trying to, like, do the fucking Gnostic Mass or like, whatever. Betty, what's wrong with you? Don't you have anything better to do? It's what she wanted to do. And then just. Why does she oh, not want these meetings to happen? She's literally just a bastard. Yeah. She's just, just fucking for fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. She's just a troll. Yeah. And she's another one. Like, depending on depending on who's describing her, uh, the descriptions are straight up bipolar. Like, she's either the sweetest, most lovely hostess and lovely lady, or she's the devil herself. Like, much like Wilfred Smith, much like Aleister Crowley, much like another fella we're about to meet. I feel like some people would say that about me. Uh, maybe. I mean, you know. Maybe. maybe. I feel like we all have that to a degree, but to a much smaller, tinier degree. Yeah. I mean, people like you, you know. people don't like you. You know, mm-hmm. that's fine. This is like they love you or they loathe you. Yeah. You know? Well, I fall into the love camp. Of God Betty. damn it. Like, right, even well, knowing how evil she I've, we'll I just, see. We'll see I how just that love these, progresses. you know? 
Love a little bitch. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, it was around this time, one way or another, we're not exactly sure where, when, who introduced him. Well, we know it was through the sci-fi club. But Jack met a man by the name of Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. The Hubster. L. Ron Hubbard. Mr. Hubbard. Fucking self. Yeah, no, you know what? We got to I, 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 I got to give it I got to give it to him cuz I knew he was the fucking the villain of this story, but until I like really dug into like more sources yeah, you didn't know than how. just strange angel like all oh, I've been deep into this for the last fucking while. Oh my god, L. Ron Hubbard is an evil fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to give him the theme music. Mm. He doesn't deserve this, but it's just what came to my came to my head. Mm. So somehow, the hubby, Elron Hubbard ends up at the fucking parsonage. I imagine him just like covered in grease, like rolling in. Basically, but it's spiritual grease. Yeah. And more than anyone else of these types of characters, did people either love Elron Hubbard or fucking despised him. Now I have to cut this off because I'm going to get sued otherwise. They're listening. You know, Disney's listening. They own that shit now. <laughs> <laughs> and in case you don't know, L. Ron Hubbard would later go on to found Scientology, ruin hundreds of thousands of lives. Who knows how many? Mm-hmm. He was a pathological liar of a sci-fi writer at this time only. He hasn't done that yet. And yeah, people either fucking loved him or goddamn hated him. Jack fucking loved him. Okay. Loved him. He he was already... Well, you know, he's probably interesting to hang out with and be around. He's got a lot of tall tales to tell, a lot of I mean, fun he, stories. Dude, they might not be true, but they're fun stories. They're so fucking stupid. They're so <laughs> incredibly absurd and unbelievable that to any normal person, you know that that is a repulsive man yeah. who's just bald-faced lying about fucking sinking Japanese nuclear subs and fucking being a nuclear physicist and fucking uh, getting wounded by running from natives in the Amazon and being a world traveling explorer. And just like, you know, there's like one story, like there's someone at like a sci-fi club, like called him on, on a ship by being like, so how old did you say you were? Oh, you're like 30. That's funny because all the stories you told that would take at least 80 years. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, Like, all that travel would take a long fucking time back then, too. Yeah, no, he was, dude, what he was actually doing was fucking periodically staying in mental hospitals so he could keep getting fucking disability insurance from being in the Navy, where he was just on a boat and, like, wasted a bunch of ammunition firing at something that wasn't there. And that's true. He's just, like... He's cracked. He's already fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And <laughs> just like fucking Harold Klemp, somehow it makes it work. Yeah. <laughs> Power of imagination. Jack is also fucking cracked because he believes it all. He believes it all. Hmm. Every fucking story that Elrond starts telling. It's fun to believe. Yeah. I guess. You know? I guess. But I wouldn't. You wouldn't. Not that dude. No. Like... I don't know. It's just like. He doesn't have the charisma to me. No. I mean, he's gross. Yeah. Like, 
I don't know. Like, you know, those people mm. just like, you're just fucking talking out of your ass. Like it's not entertaining. Cause I know you're not that person. Yeah. You know, Parsons already knew him as a writer. He already knew L Ron Hubbard as a writer. And he was one of Jack's favorite sci-fi writers. Oh yeah. Cause he was getting his stories published and like, well, yeah, he's a prolific writer. Yeah. He wrote a fuck ton. He, I think he was even at one point the like record holder for most prolific author. Yeah. It's, still is. Um, oh, okay. A lot of those books are like Scientology. Yeah. Books and communications and shit. It's not all um, fiction. Mm-hmm. Like his novels and shit. But yeah, no, he's the most prolific writer, I guess. He's a fucking demon. Yeah. He's a bad, bad man. <laughs> um, bad boy hubby. Jack Williamson, who is a, an attendee at the science fiction club that they hung out at, he said, quote, I recall his eyes. The wary, light blue eyes that I somehow associate with the gunmen of the Old West, watching me sharply as he talked, as if to see how much I believed. Mm. Like, <laughs> that's. And, then he, and he goes on to say, not much. Yeah. <laughs> um, another person said, uh, Neeson Himmel enjoyed pointing out discrepancies in, in dude's stories, uh, much to Hubbard's irritation. He said, uh, I can't stand phonies, and so and he was so obviously a phony, but he was not a dummy. He could charm the shit out of anybody. Another resident of the Parsonage, Alice Cornog, put her feelings more simply. I thought he was a bastard. I disliked him thoroughly. Eh. Yeah. Mm. Really, with Hubbard, most people hated Didn't him. like him. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, when Crowley heard about him, he was like, no, get mm-hmm. this dude the fuck out of here. But like, like recognizes like. Yeah, exactly. Fucking exactly. The uh, No. Uh, They're not like on the same level of evil, but st- like, you know. Like recognizes like. Crowley's less evil. Yes. Much, for sure. Much like, less. Much I would, less. Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard might be the wickedest man in the world. Like, <laughs> pretty fucking wicked. And, you know, still around. Scientologists. Yeah. Uh, influence and power is still his fucking reverberation and it's quiet too and that's Mm -hmm. when you gotta be the most worried (laughs) but this period was also a turning point in L. Ron Hubbard's life too Mm. very much so it's hard to say if any of the shit he would get up to later would have happened had he not gone to the parsonage and met Jack Parsons Mm. and and through Jack Parsons been introduced to the work of Aleister Crowley and to the field of western esotericism in general western magic in general the golden dawn shit Kabbalah, uh, the fucking Abramelon rituals and shit, right? Yeah. Um, Parsons thought that L. Ron was just the shit. He thought he was the coolest man. He wrote this letter to Crowley upon meeting him. He wrote, about three months ago, I met Captain L. Ron Hubbard, a writer and explorer of whom I had known for some time. He is a gentleman, red hair, green eyes, honest and intelligent. And we have become- Honest. And we have become great friends. Yes, honest, he says. Although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. He is the most thalamic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. Yeah. Okay. I I can see I can see Hubbard having magical potential. For sure. For sure. He can project his own reality. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure Crowley saw that like recognizes like. Yeah. Right? He was just like, oh. The honest part questionable right the magical potential part yeah i can see it i mean and like i mean well yeah 
Crowley was also getting letters from everybody else around too about the same dude. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is right when Crowley realized that Jack was not going to be the golden child. Like he wasn't just not going to be the guy to succeed him. Yeah. Because that was kind of what everyone thought up until this point was that Jack was the guy who was going to succeed Crowley after he died. But it wouldn't be. It would not be. But like, this is kind of the point where Crowley realizes that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Crowley was probably like, um, excuse me. You, you said what about Hubbard? But yeah, you know, it, uh, it wasn't only Jack who really liked L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, no, otherwise he wouldn't have gotten as successful as he did. No, no. I mean, I mean, at the parsonage. Uh, yeah. Um, Betty also got along well with Hubbard. Well, Betty was like Jack. A little too well, you might say. Oh, oh yeah. Betty, ew. Yeah. Hmm. Have you ever heard about the horrible shit that happened to uh, one of L. Ron Hubbard's wife's, uh, wives right when he started Scientology? It was Betty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. I forgot that Betty goes on to marry L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. Yes. Yeah, wow. I mean, I just spoiled the ending, but like, yeah, no, yeah. Straight up. Grady McMurtry, who ended up becoming one of... No, they're Foley. a perfect match, though. They are. Yeah, absolutely. They're both fucking bastards. It's a love story. <laughs> between... Sure. Between psychopaths. <laughs> sure, yeah. It's a love story, um, still. So, Grady, Grady McMurtry, who you remember is... Uh, or he was a poet who hung out at the sci-fi club, and he ended up becoming, like, Crowley's disciple when he was stationed in England, mm-hmm. and uh, would end up, like, reviving the OTO and shit. Uh, he watched a fateful interaction between Jack, Ron, and Betty. Jack and, and Ron were fencing, as they as they often did. I didn't really mention that before. Jack loved fencing and anything that could possibly kill him, really. Oh, all right. You know, like guns, archery, dangerous shit, explosive, you know. That fits yeah. into his character it's, it's, profile perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Jack and Ron were fencing, as they often did, and Betty was watching from the sidelines. Uh, and then Jack like encouraged her to take a take a turn fencing fencing Elrond Hubbard. Oh, and it was just so sexy. According to McMurtry, she launched into a ferocious attack, and he thought someone was going to get killed. Hubbard, unfazed, stopped her attack by slapping her forcefully across the nose. <laughs> yeah, uh, and she Hubbard, liked it. Hubbard and Hubbard and Betty were basically inseparable from then on out. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, eh. Jack had Jack had always prided himself on his ability to renounce jealousy. Mm-hmm. You know the whole thelemic thing. That this was too much. Yeah, it was a real too much. He was like he he didn't like it, and he didn't like how Even, much he didn't like it. Yeah, you know because he was feeling serious jealousy for the like probably the first time. Do you think it was made worse by the fact that he actually admired Hubbard? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. He was, do you think? Yeah, he probably felt in a way like Hubbard was maybe superior to him, and that was like triggering a little bit. At least Hubbard. I think Jack saw that Hubbard could at least compete with him. Yeah, not a lot of fucking people could compete with Jack Parsons mm-hmm. in being a human. Right? He was a fucking human being. He had a pull. He had a pull, but like. He's fucking cool. Jack Parsons is fucking cool. 
Way cooler than man, Hubbard. A ladies' man. He's blowing up rockets. He's yeah. fucking, he loves poetry and literature and shit. And then all of a sudden, here, here comes a writer, which is the type of people that Jack fucking loves. Mm-hmm. And like someone who can spin a story and can, you know, project his inner reality, right? And like that's a, and it's a very magical thing. Yes. I was just right? thinking that. I was thinking that's a very powerful magical tool. Yeah. But he tried his goddamn best to repress that jealousy. And keep being good Thelemite and shit. And so he, George Pendle wrote that, like, he, oh no, Jack wrote this, that he was now more in the role of the, and quote, genial elder brother when the three of them would, like, go on dates and shit. Which is, oh. yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And if you remember, like, this is the, Betty is Helen's younger sister. Helen, who is the best person in this story, again, yeah. who fought. She financed the rocket tests that fucking made JPL and shit. Mm-hmm. Without her, it doesn't happen. You know? That's true. Without Helen, this none of this happens. Yes. Yeah. No, like she is important the fucking to keep in mind. Yeah. Helen's the best person in the story and possibly the most important. But <laughs> what are you gonna do? She was just a little too good to be a real main character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but Betty was her half sister, who was always, you know, an asshole to her. And about like you know the issues with her abusive father and shit, and Jack chose Betty over Helen. Like that was a big thing. That was another big moment in his life. You know. Yeah, they just had better chemistry. Yeah, I'm not. I forget the fucking stupid way he puts it. But yeah, I remember the the little blurb that he wrote. I prefer I prefer her sexually. Yeah. Shut the fuck up, Jack. And now, like soon, Elron was uh, making out with Betty right in front of Jack. And according to uh, according to some of the housemates, the hostility between the two men became palpable. Like, <laughs> still pretending to be like best friends, and they're all cool and shit. Now Elron Hubbard's just living in your fucking house. Oh yeah, because he moved him in too. Oh, geez. moved him into the fucking house. He was staying. Him and Betty, uh, not quite yet. Uh, Betty was still like sleeping in Jack's room and stuff. They were pretending to be a couple, even mm-hmm. though, like. Everybody knew what was going on because it was the fucking parsonage. Yeah. Right. One. Robert Cornog. Oh, I wanted to mention this fella. He's a Robert Cornog was staying there and just Robert Cornog is a nuclear physicist who was just working on the Manhattan Project. Okay. Like he literally just stopped working on the Manhattan Project and went to go live like Manhattan Project ended. Mm-hmm. World War Two ended. He just went to go live at the parsonage. These weren't just any old fucking stupid scientists and occultists. These was the cream of the crop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his ass, he remembered stumbling into Parsons' room one morning to find Betty and Hubbard entwined and, quote, like a starfish on a clam. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's quite a way of describing it. I can yeah. see it in my mind's eye, though. I can see it very clearly. Elron <laughs> Hubbard inspires some fucking... Who's the Real starfish creative. and who's the clam? Fucking cat keeps running through here making squirrel noises. <laughs> yeah, she's on one right now. Dude, Elron is the clam. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a clam man. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand how Jack could start going a little fucking crazy at this point. He's suppressing how he feels, yeah. and that's never good. Because I feel like he missed a very important lesson about the shit that he thought he knew 
you know, like the back of his hand, mm-hmm. you know, the flame shit, the true will shit. Like, yeah, you, like, I guess, you know, that is a point that you shouldn't have jealousy, but I think you're also supposed to understand what you're the fuck you feel. So you yeah, can you're supposed it. to honor your feelings yeah. at the same time, or at least understand it and acknowledge it. And right. Not just pretend it's not there. Uh-huh. You know, instead, Jack uh, threw himself into the only part of life. It seemed like he could control magic. So up until this point, we haven't really talked about operative magic in this mm-hmm. series. We're in episode three of four. And we haven't really talked about operative magic, that spooky, spooky shit, right? Conjuring spirits and all that stuff. Well, you know, the, the ritual-ass conjuring, evocating, invocating, spooky geometry drawn, poorly pronounced Hebrew and tone and fucking magic. Yeah. That's what we're all here for, right? Well, no, nah, cause that, that's because really, Aleister Crowley's system of magic... Though his ass contradicted himself to seemingly every other year and every other person he fucking talked to, was in many ways about psychological discipline. Alistair Crowley really, like, and again, this changed depending on who he was talking to and what period in his life, but he was at least very focused on the idea of the psychological model of magic, mm-hmm. changing your consciousness to better enact your true will. And right. I mean, and his shit, which is probably why he contradicted himself so much is because yeah. as a, you know, change your perception up. Oh, it's because he's an asshole. Yeah. He's just saying stuff. Mm-hmm. He just happens to be saying some very correct stuff. A lot of times. It's fun to do. You know? Oh yeah. I, I, I just say words. Usually we're just saying words right now. I contradict myself all the time. Like, oh yeah. I mean, I'm not. Everybody does. Yeah. It's impossible not to. But yeah, like thalamic magic, like, you know, according to Aleister Crowley, point of this shit, the only point is to the discovery and enactment of your true will. The thing you were put on this planet to do. The thing you're here to do. That's not a job. That's not a place you live and a thing you're doing. It's not an art form you make. It's not something that can be easily described. It's yours and yours alone. It's your true will. Right? I think he said, you know, all else is window dressing or something like that. Yeah. Meaning, Crowley, despite what people think about Aleister Crowley, he was the opposite of a dude who was trying to summon demons to get them to do his fucking bidding and get that money and make the, you know, like he fucked with that shit and like, not exactly that shit, but like that wasn't what he was about. He's not, it's he not ate that, that shit. God fucking damn Guess it. what people, this is what you must understand. There are excellent benefits in eating poop. Yeah. <laughs> he did. He was a man who ate shit yeah. because he wanted to break all taboos and do, you know, all that shit. That was his fucking true will and that's why we're talking about him right now you know he dared to break those boundaries dared to dream you become a legend if yeah. you eat poop it's true it's fucking true i mean but that's all very heady that's not what people think of when they think of mm-hmm. magic sorcery black magic you know what i mean it's not the image of yeah. this like you know very heady philosophical fucking bullshit and that's not what most people want out of their fucking Mr. Crowley. That's Crowley. We're talking Crowley. Crowley. Right? Um, Jack kind of wanted Crowley. Yeah. Jack wanted that shit. That spooky, spooky paranormal shit. Right? That's what Jack wanted to learn. That's what Jack wanted to see. Because just like, this is something I've been thinking about. Mm. Jack Parsons was a man who loved the physical world. He wanted shit to happen in the here and now. He didn't give a fuck about some astral realm, some fucking realm of... He wanted to blow up rockets here. 
He wanted to get to the moon, that rock over there. He wanted to conjure spirits here. Yeah, bring them to the physical. Right. That's what Jack was all fucking about. Um, He wanted to, you know, have sex and do drugs. He was about the physical vessel and the fucking place he was in. I do not relate to that. I don't relate to it, but I understand it. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, Because, I mean, that's kind of my relationship with, with the paranormal. I mean, not really. Like, not really actually at all. But, like... I am like, I want to see a fucking UFO. And that's why I'm not going to be the guy to see one. Yeah. Never have. Never will. It's not for me. Ah, sad. But yeah, Jack was, he wanted to fucking do some real magic with a C. So he started experimenting. He wanted to see the results. Yeah. He wanted fucking proof. He wanted to do, or mm-hmm. just the spectacle or whatever. Um, he started experimenting with like Voodon, you know, Santeria, fucking... Uh, all sorts of but witchcraft, you know, old European witchcraft and shit, that stuff, folk magic, that down and dirty shit, right? All right. Um, in 1943, and he was doing this the whole time he was at the OTO too. Like, yeah. he didn't just start out. He was always interested in that. In 1943, uh, Jane Wolfe, who was, she was the old lady. Uh, she wrote to uh, Crowley telling him of Jack experimenting in Voodoo and hoodoo and sorcery. Je- uh, Crowley wrote to Parsons to warn him. And like, I think this is like r- really key to understanding Crowley as a, ma- as a magician for the layman to, for the regular ass, normal person with a job and shit mm-hmm. to understand Crowley, like the difference between Alistair Crowley and black magic sorcery, Satanism Crowley wrote to Parsons and said, I don't like at all what you say about witchcraft. All this black magic stuff is 75% nonsense. And the rest is just plain dirt. There's not even any point to it. It's just like, you're wasting your fucking time. It's mostly stupid. The rest is like, what is the point? What are you doing? Mm. What, is, what are you doing? Why aren't you finding your true will? Maybe that was. Yeah. Maybe that was. That's his one way to, ex- to travel down the path towards your true will, maybe. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I can't say yes or no to that, but like, why not? I don't know. Yeah, it's not for me to to say. I certainly haven't done all the reading. I'm not an expert in the Lama. I've been getting my fucking mind blown by how deep that shit goes. Or what Jack's true will is. I don't know that like, fucking dude. Yeah, right. I only know I what he left. Yeah, I don't know at all. I have so. no idea who that guy is. But he did like blowing shit up. We do know that. Yes, <laughs> that is evident. So Jack went off to practice uh, his own experiments with who else? But motherfucking Ed Foreman. Motherfucking Ed Foreman was down. Excellent. Ed Foreman was fucking down the for boys. voodoo. The boys are doing voodoo in the desert, man. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, he, Ed didn't really believe in it at first. Right? He was all too willing to help Jack out with anything and everything. So the same way they did the rocketry, they did the magic. They skipped huh. the boring stuff. <laughs> they skipped the boring stuff at the beginning and went right to the dangerous and the dangerous and difficult shit at the end of the book. Right. Because I remember Ed wasn't interested in like Thalema or OTO at all. He was a bit like they were. Frank Molina was not interested. Yeah. Ed Foreman. I I, I think Jack, I think Jack inducted him into the OTO or at least persuade, like was trying to persuade him. Okay. Ed was just down. He was yeah. fucking down with it. It's like, I'll try anything once. Jack Foreman, uh, Jack Parsons was just his best friend. Yeah. They were just brothers. Like he was there It's fun to do anything with your best friend. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's fucking cool. Just like their rocketry experiments, you know, they, 
didn't want to learn the basic science. They didn't want to fucking learn the learn the fundamentals, the boring stuff. They wanted to go right to the difficult and dangerous shit at the end of the book. That I do relate to. Yeah, definitely. Ab- yeah, absolutely. You work work backwards, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, doesn't it's not the best thing to do with super dangerous shit like explosives and fucking doesn't usually sorcery. work in general, you know? Or it blows up in your face. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the two. It one of the first instances of it blowing up in their face was uh an incident that had a uh, dramatic and unsettling psychological effect on Ed Foreman that his family still discusses to this day. Okay, I'm very interested. There's not a lot of fucking description of this. Oh, damn. But I can't, I have to imagine it's not the only incident. There is, like, uh, I'm reading from Strange Angel here. It seems that Foreman was returning to his bedroom late one night following the performance of a ritual when he felt the whole house shake. At the same time, he heard a piercing scream coming from outside his window and looked out of it. He would recall he saw a number of horrible entities floating outside his window, what he recognized as banshees. Don't like that. Female spirits whose wailing warns of a death in the house. Uh, With the sound of their screams filling his ears, he rushed downstairs to ask the other members of the house if they too could hear it, but nobody could. Gene Foreman says, uh, up until then, he had not believed in Jack's hobby. Now he was absolutely terrified. The events of that night would unsettle Foreman for the rest of his life. Huh. Yeah. Do banshees have like a time limit on their screams? Because, no you idea. know, like if a banshee's just out there screaming and the whole thing is like, oh, someone's going to die. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, everybody in the house is going to at <laughs> yeah, some yeah, point. Yeah. But when, you know? Yeah. No, I think it means fairly. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I don't know. Like, I've heard some scary wind where like, well, when, yeah. you know, yeah, when you yeah. get a little stoned, a little scared, you don't even have to be on any drugs or any mind altering um, sure. substances. Yeah, yeah. When you do a magic ritual, you are altering your mind. Yeah. You know, you could freak yourself out. Yeah. But I mean, did someone die? I mean, not like immediately. But I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll touch back on that. Next episode, I think. Okay. <laughs> but the whole thing, like, he feels the whole house shaking. He sees these fucking things. And he's like a salt of the earth fucking guy. Yeah. He's never had one of these That experience is real. He runs downstairs. The first thing he does, the first thing he does is run downstairs and be like, did you guys feel that? Did you guys hear that? Yep. And they're like, no. And he goes, what the fuck? Because he was sure that was real. And he's like, he didn't have any history of, mm. you know. And I'm sure there were other, there was other shit too, or I'm sure those are like some stories, but I don't know, but it scared the living fuck out of him. It would scare the living fuck out of me. Yeah. Well, and Ed wasn't the only one who was uh, suffering from Jack's uh, new devil may care attitude towards fucking any and all sorcery all the time. Jane Wolfe wrote to Carl Germer, uh, Crowley's fucking German debt collector and like his eyes in America. Jane Wolfe wrote to Germer about about Jack's experiments. She said, uh, there's something strange going on. Our own Jack is, enam- is enamored of witchcraft, the Humfort, voodoo. From the start, he wanted to evoke something, no matter what. I am inclined to think, so long as he got a result. Jeez. Uh, he also claimed at the time that Jack was impregnating statuettes with, and quote, a vital force by magical invocation... And then selling them 
leading many of the OTO to worry about the demonic forces he might un- unleash upon the house. Um, a form of group hysteria suddenly gripped the OTO members in the house, and they began performing banishing rituals uh, to clear the psychic atmosphere on a regular basis. Oh my gosh, just to counteract what Jack is doing. Yeah. Mika Aldrich, an OTO member who had recently moved into the house, believed that something, in quote, alien and inimical, inimical, that's a word, lurked in the house's wood paneling. Something alien is in the fucking walls. In the wood paneling. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you... There's you can see some odd visuals in wood grain. For, for sure. Yeah, for sure. like alien faces. I feel like I feel like that's a strong term for an OTO member to use. Yeah. Especially one at the fucking parsonage. She's probably used to some drugs and shit. Like mm-hmm. there's something alien and inimical in the in the wood paneling of the walls. That's yeah. fucking strange. It's really scary to yeah. think like there's something literally in the wood in the walls of your house. Yes. Because you're surrounded by it. Yeah. And I mean, the house didn't build it. It belonged to a millionaire who had his own weird fucking story. Mm. Shit, like it was weird energy in the house forever. And I mean, Jack is just going off the fucking walls with poorly prepared for magic that in a really rough emotional state, a suppressed fucking depression, loathing fucking manic state. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not the right frame of mind to be doing that shit. Right. But I want to take a look at a couple sentences in there. Just, just quickly, let's take a look. Um, Jack was impregnating statuettes with vital forces and then selling them. Yeah. Yeah, I did kind of speed past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I want to make sure we, we touch on that. Okay. So there's there's two ways to think about this. One, he's doing the haunted doll bit. That's exactly what I thought of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, I can respect that grift. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought of it. <laughs> you know, selling haunted dolls to suckers. Yeah, here's this object. Um, Ooh, it's haunted. I put a, a thing in yeah, it. Yeah, Or it's... Uh, Two, it's a bit less of a grift, and he's haunting the dolls by impregnating them with vital forces. My man's selling cum dolls. An innovator through and through. My God. <laughs> I don't know what this means. I don't know which one I want to think it means. Impregnating statue. With vital forces and then selling them. Yeah, he's putting the energy inside of them. Yeah. I just literally don't know if that means he's coming on the dolls or not. It's heavily implied. It's heavily by, implied. By the wording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was fucking... What's he, was he going charging nuts. for those? I don't know. <laughs> I really wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, modern equivalent of... Probably just like 50 bucks. Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What do you do with it? Like, what's the benefit of having one? I don't know what the benefit of having that. I don't know what his sales pitch was. (laughs) Like, I want to hear the uh, fucking elevator pitch. Mm. Jack's cum dolls. Marvel's cum dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking disgusting. The whole fucking house... Because again, it's not just OTO members there. It's just, there's like nuclear physicists who like smoking weed are some of the residents there while this is all happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sci-fi writer nerds. There's like three OTO members who live there, maybe. Yeah. 
Um, uh, the poor sci-fi writer that like walks into the room. He's like, hey, Jack, do you want to read? My- oh, sorry. I didn't know well, you were making a cum doll. Well, that's what I got right here, actually. Um, <laughs> Alva Rogers. I, 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 I lost the quote. I, I left my goddamn copy of the book <laughs> at home. Quickly walks out. Alva Rogers walked into Jack's room just like, hey, Jack, what's going on? He fucking opens the door and he just sees this dark room, these candles lit. And there's Jack in his fucking robe, you know, kneeling. I'm imagining he's naked underneath the robe. So I'm like, imagine maybe it's like fluttering open in the back. You can see all of his butt. And uh, he's just like kneeling over this fucking chalk, some sigil, some fucking, you know, spooky Enochian sigil or something. Mm -hmm. And he's just in, in a trance, just uh, mumbling in Enochian and like, Doing this shit that this journalist has never fucking even thought of before. Right? Yeah. In full blown. This is Jack Parsons at full wizard. Mm-hmm. And Alva got so fucking, he, he, he writes about how he was seeing into the deepest, darkest depths of a man's soul. And he knew immediately what the ritual was for. Implying that Jack was trying to kill L. Ron Hubbard with magic. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, um, and masturbating furiously over. Yeah, well, yeah. that's you know? not what he was trying to do, though. <laughs> Jack was not trying to murder L. Ron Hubbard with uh, with magic. It wasn't a banishing either. It wasn't any sort of spooky vengeance on fucking L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, Jack was doing something that many before and many after him would do. That's an interesting interpretation from this journalist. I know. Because I'm guessing, you know, he was probably friends with Jack. Yeah. So the fact that that was his interpretation gives us a little bit more insight into, you know. Yeah. uh, Um, Yeah, no. Jack was doing something that many before and many after him would try to do. He was conjuring a girlfriend. That was his solution to the problem. (sighs) Well, honestly, I have to say, this method works. Well, it wasn't... That's just kind of a pithy way to describe it. Him conjuring a girlfriend was just the... um, It was the first step to... The first step of something called the Babylon working. Did he have a specific person or image in mind of like... Or just anyone? He certainly had a specific image. Okay. This was so much bigger and weirder than just that simple shit, though. Yeah. So this was this was the first step in something called the Babylon working, which has achieved infamy among certain spooky circles, among among the counterculture, essentially. Mm-hmm. This shit, you'll find, you know, fucking right wing tinfoil hat wearing bunker warriors on AboveTopSecret.org, if that oh, still exists. Yes, it does. Fuck yeah. You know, they know about the Babylon working for some reason. People that people that think the government's all satanic and shit, they know about the Babylon working because they have a really fucked up and like terrifying interpretation of the all these events and who these people were, which is fucking weird. Um and it scares me, but uh yeah, the hippies know about the Babylon working. Fucking all the occultists know about the this shit is so much more famous than Jack Parsons Rocket Works. <laughs> Maybe for good reason. I don't know. And I'm going to try to explain this. It's it's super important. I think it's super interesting. I feel like this might be a Herculean task to make this palatable, so I'm sorry. So You can do it. I think I can. I believe in you. I think I can. So, 
the Babylon working Jack considered to be his most important work. And contrary to his work on rockets, he didn't have a crack team with him. He didn't have a mechanic. He didn't have a mathematician. He was just as sloppy as ever, right? (laughs) Uh, In Empire of Angels, a book primarily on John Dee and Edward Kelly, Jason Louv um, really like lays out like this some of the sloppiness of Jack Parsons like ritual work and shit. As like he went to the he went to the end of the book before learning the fundamentals, before memorizing the shit. Yeah. And what the thing he was trying to do is exactly what Jack Parsons in the throes of manic depression, head full of speed and mescaline and absinthe. And weed. Whoa. And cocaine. That's a lot of shit. He loved all that shit. All and, at the same time, though? I mean, you know, on the same week, definitely. Hmm. Mm. At the same time. With <laughs> he died even younger. Um, but what he was trying to do was, he was trying to incarnate the Thalamic goddess Babylon on Earth. Babylon, the whore goddess. The mother of abominations. Sick. Uh, the Scarlet Woman. Babylon is fucking cool. Um, and we're going to get into that, but you know, it's spelled B A B A L O N. Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. Not B A B Y L O N. Although yeah. Crowley did see the book of revelations as, I mean, yeah, there's an obvious link of course, between them. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. the same, it's the same link. Thematically. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, because like the whore of Babylon is referred to in several places in the book of Revelations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Crowley grew up a hardcore Christian as a as a kid. Like that was a huge influence. I mean, so much of the lame is taken from Catholicism. I mean, it's the, it's called the fucking Gnostic Mass. It's the Ecclesia Catholica Gnostica, right? It's like the ecclesiastical ecclesiastical order of Thalema. Yeah, like, it's straight up like trying to be the anti-Catholicism, right? Crowley says he read the book of Revelation as a child and, and imagined himself as the beast. Fuck yeah. did. So this is the book of Revelations talking about the whore of Babylon, right? So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication, and above and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Book of Revelation is fucking hardcore. Yeah. Um, I love her. Alistair Crowley recorded his his view on, on uh, this passage in his uh, book, The Vision and the Voice. It's one of my favorite pieces of Crowley writing I think I've ever ever read. All I get is that the apocalypse was the recension of a dozen or so totally disconnected allegories that were pieced together and ruthlessly planed down to make them into a connected account, and that recension was rewritten and edited in the interests of Christianity, because people were complaining that Christianity could show no true spiritual knowledge or any food for the best minds, nothing but miracles, which only deceived the most ignorant, and theology, which only suited pedants. So a man got hold of this recension and turned it Christian and imitated the style of John, this, and this explains why the end of the world does not happen every few years as advertised. <laughs> so, in Thelema, Babylon is a, you know, she, 
in her most abstract form, she represents the female sexual impulse and liberated woman. But that's also the most basic ass form, too. It's much more than that. Babylon, as the as the whore goddess, she she is the flamic goddess of the third sphere of the tree of life, Bina, which is the sphere ruled by Saturn. It is the um, feminine part of the unknowable, the three spheres that make up the unknowable, unexperienceable fucking godhead, right? Kether. Yeah, with Keter, yeah. Um, Chesed, and Bina. Uh, Chokma. Uh, Chokma, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. Bina is what... It's the feminine aspect of what is like branching down towards the material world. Yeah. But, you know, it's at the top. There's the godhead, Kether. Yeah. And that splits into the masculine, uh, Chokma and Bina. Mm -hmm. Um, And the paths of those are the Magus and the high priestess, respectfully, I believe. I think so. Um, and then those two go down into Tifereth in the center or their two respective pillars, the pillar of severity and the pillar of mercy. Bina is the sphere of Saturn. So Bina is also the sphere of the material world, reality, right? Because that's kind of like in, in that cosmology, like Saturn, the maker god is at the end of the planets. They didn't know about Neptune and Uranus right. and shit at the time. Yeah, it's so, the point of the tree of life that connects the points to where the material yeah, yeah, world it's, starts. It's, it is Chokma and Kether have no materiality to them. Right. And right. I think what makes it so human is because Chokma is wisdom, right? And Bina Chokma, yeah, is, is understanding. Is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So without understanding what is wisdom, it has no human aspect to it yes, for us absolutely. to grasp onto. Yeah. If we don't have understanding of events, if we can't, you know think about them and contemplate them, then they're meaningless to Mm -hmm. us. So Bina is what... Bina is also compassion. Yes, it's it's what brings the abstract into reality. Mm -hmm. It's how our thoughts affect our lives. It's... Yeah. And compassion is also the recognition... Is also recognizing that we're all literally the same organism. Mm -hmm. We are all literally connected. It's... We're one thing. Yeah. Right? We are all of it. We are the fucking... And and that's like, you know, the, uh, so so much of Thelema is described in these like brutal words. This really like, just like the book of Revelation. Shit. I mean, we haven't even talked about the Thelemic description of Babylon yet. <laughs> but the whore goddess, the mother of abomination sounds awful. Right. Like it sounds unpleasant. Yeah. Right. That's my reaction to it isn't, but I very much see right. why that would be so. The world reality is unpleasant a lot of times. Yes. It's also pleasurable a lot of times. It also doesn't mm-hmm. judge ever like like a prostitute, like a whore, right? To use the language that Babylon has talked about in. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to call Babylon the sex worker goddess. I'm just <laughs> not doing it. Babylon is the whore goddess. I don't give a shit. Yeah, that's how she's yeah, referred she's the to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very complicated the theological concept, mm-hmm. which is one of the, like, I didn't know a lot about Thelema looking into this. I, I really appreciate and respect complicated theologies like this. Like that's not an easy idea to, to understand like the goddess of the material world, why that would be the whore goddess, the acceptance of everything that exists in this universe. It's, you know, the fucking red light district, the puke smell in the red light district at fucking 4am when you've made the worst decision of your life and you have no money and you're beaten in the fucking street because you yeah. bought below from the wrong dealer or something. I don't know. But like there, there is beauty in that. There right. is still the infinite compassion of the universe and that we're all connected. And that's 
Babylon. And but nature also doesn't make like moral value judgments. Exactly. Babylon makes no moral value judgments. She's not. Shit just happens. It's not her fucking job. Yeah. Right. She also represents, in Parsons' view, he was very heavily heavily into this female agency mm-hmm. and female sexuality, and the idea of Mother Earth and like the an- the antithesis to the patriarchal fucking structures of Christianity. And the and sexual repression and the damage that shit does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and uh, along with her status as a goddess, and it's kind of like a lot like the Egyptian goddesses in that, like, yeah, no, the the character, the Scarlet, is just a, a hieroglyph. Like, that's not the god. The god can't be. You can't understand it. Right. Yeah, it's just a, a feeble representation mm-hmm. that our human minds can yeah. comprehend. Yeah, exactly. Because we can't comprehend what it actually is. Exactly. Yeah. But Crowley also believed that Babylon had an earthly aspect or avatar, a living woman who occupied the spiritual office of the Scarlet Woman. And Crowley had a number of Scarlet Women throughout his life. It was like a job he interviewed women for, you know? <laughs> it's like how Amy Carlson has a bunch of father gods. It's exactly like that. It's fucking exactly like <laughs> It's absolutely 100% exactly like that. Yeah. And, you know, he was the great beast whom the, you know, the Scarlet Woman rode, rode upon the beast. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the role of the Scarlet, Scarlet Woman was to help manifest the energies of the Aeon of Horus, you know, which was the whole thing of Thalema bringing in the Aeon of Horus. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Age. Yes. So what Jack was trying to do and what he would attempt over the next three months was first to conjure an elemental mate, his own Scarlet Woman, through which he and his Scarlet Woman could bring about the incarnation of Babylon on Earth as the Moonchild, first described in Crowley's novel, Moonchild. Yes. We'll see what Crowley had to say about all this later. Now, despite Jack's lack of consistent documentation of the rest of his... Oh, you might be wondering, like, what's the point? What's the point of summoning Babylon? Like, Jack wants... Jack is done with the Age of Horus. Like... <laughs> he's kind of fucking he's over it he it's fucking weirdly he's enacting all of the social movements that would happen throughout the u.s between 1946 and now mm-hmm. like fucking all of them i mean yeah he's it, just it, doing it on a I smaller mean, scale and a smaller timeline i mean like women were treated a lot worse in 1946 i would say that women have a lot more sway over the way things go than they did in 1946 I wouldn't say that they're still equal, or that they're equal yet, but... It was worse, yes. Yes, right. The progress we have made and hopefully continue to make was what Jack was trying to achieve. The progress on all those fronts. You can buy weed legally now. Yeah. Right? All that shit. He saw Babylon as representing the groovy age. The mm. groovy He's like, bring it on. Age. Bring on the revolution. The age of witchcraft. Of folk magic, uh, not of secret societies and shit. Like, honestly, it's like, just wait 10 years. It'll, it'll happen. It never really would goes it, away either. Would it have happened, though? Would it have? I guess it never really leaves. Well. It's, it, it's um, we it rises see. and falls in popularity. It's true. But, yeah, this sort of, the sense of, like, spiritualism and fascination with the supernatural, I feel, is very close to America's history. Well, there are some very specific aims of Jack's that we'll get into a bit later Mm. um, that do seem to be strangely prescient. And we can see a direct line, which we'll get into in the next episode a little bit, a direct line 
from Jack to the sparks of the countercultures of the 50s. Oh, he affected history a ton. There's no denying that. Very much in the ways that the Babylon working was intended to do. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting. Many magicians describe Jack as a fucking awful magician because he was so sloppy. He was so fucking, and he straight up, what he was trying to do did not work. Weird shit happened, but bad shit happened too. Like he, he fucked it up. He was not a great magician, and a lot of magicians really don't like how he's held up as this great magician. I understand where they're coming from, but weird shit fucking happened, which we're about to get into. All right, so from January 4th through January 15th, uh, Jack was working probably alone, doing this ritual, which took two hours to complete, and he was doing it twice daily for 11 days. Yes, to summon the Scarlet Woman. Yeah, and so this was... A lot of this is like very advanced slammer that Jack probably didn't have the requisite degrees to like have been using at this point. Yeah, but he's going to do it anyway. Yeah, if I can do it anyway. It's the Enochian system of magic. Okay. Uh, I just got to get through this. In the late 1500s, the wizard yeah. Dr. John D. and con man alchemist Edward Kelly, whom Crowley claimed to be the reincarnation of. Edward Kelly. It's very funny. They received a series of communications from, end quote, angels. These angels, though, these angels are weird as fuck. Like, weirder than the biblically biblically accurate angels, right? Mm-hmm. They communicated with D through Edward Kelly, who acted as the scryer. One day, maybe soonish, we're going to do the story of John D and Edward Kelly because it is the most nonsense bizarre story this side of the dog star. Oh, yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. But in short, the angels gave Dean Kelly a worldview, a series of spheres called uh, a series of spheres encasing the world called ethers, which must be passed through to achieve uh, illumination, uh, you know, knowledge of ascension. Yeah, complicated ascension. Yeah. Yeah. Scary ascension, mm-hmm. which is key. Yeah. Like, that's it's how you know. It's gotta be scary. Yes. You like, you're not actually getting through to anything important unless it's a bit scary. Yeah. Dude, because that's the thing. Like, am I lowest? I've almost fallen for some of the new age bullshit, mm. but there's always this feeling it's of like, nice. it feels simple. It feels good and comfortable, but you suspect, you know, deep down, you suspect it might be fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. You suspect it's probably bullshit. A lot of this stuff, it's not comfortable. In fact, it's very uncomfortable, but deep down, you suspect <laughs> that there might be something weirdly true. Or at least it's a better metaphor for whatever. Well, what it does is it awakens different parts of your mind that maybe you hadn't you haven't confronted in quite a while, and yeah. it does that through symbolism. Well, I think these guys. I think the difference is that these guys shit is honest. Mm. The only reason for it is the thing they're writing or the yeah. thing that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the light and love new age shit, the reason for it is to take your fucking money, right? Yeah, that's, sometimes that's mostly yeah, uh, you know. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's a little too harsh, but it's, it's motives aren't pure. Mm -hmm. Even if that corruption is simply like, oh, you just want to feel good. So you're making up some bullshit to lie to yourself. Yeah. That's Uh, also a lot of what magic is. Sure. But I don't think you can successfully lie to yourself unless you acknowledge the darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because this, I mean, none of this is literally true. Yeah. (laughs) This is all a metaphor for something that cannot be explained. Right. Which is why magic makes for horrible radio. But you know what? I'm trying to be a pioneer too. Yeah. So, yeah, the weird sphere ascension. 
ethers. Each one of these layers, you scry and you undergo this experience, this visionary experience that's weird as fuck. Hyper real dreamlike insanity, you know, mystic insanity, right? The angels also gave them a hyper complicated system of mathematical magic that is intensely interesting. Can't explain it. I don't understand it. And a language a full language complete with syntax in its own alphabet that doesn't look like anything. I mean, yeah, it looks kind of like uh, Hebrew and the other uh, Abjad languages, um, but it's got its own thing. Enochian. It, yeah, it's Enochian language is weird and guttural. They never called it Enochian. They never used that term, Dean Kelly. Mm. But for our purposes... Mm-hmm. If you want to see it, that is what you would Google. Mm-hmm. For our purposes... What you got to understand is that Anakin magic is weird. And Crowley and Parsons both saw themselves carrying on the work started by Dee and Kelly in the 1500s. Uh, in the Anakian tongue, Babalond, B-A-B-A-L-O-N-D, means wicked, and Babylon means harlot. Uh, Crowley saw a connection here to the whore of Babylon uh, of revelations described earlier. Also, there's uh, one of the ethers is the vision of Babylon. Right. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like the 14th ether or something. How many ethers are there? 30. Wow. Yeah, and you go from 30 to 1, I think. So something. It's cool. It's really hard to understand. I've been reading about it off and on for years, and Enochian is really tough to understand unless you, like, fucking put yourself out. Also, eventually, Edward Kelly stole all John Dee's money and ran off with his wife, maybe. All right. I'm not surprised. And just keep that in the back of your head. So... (laughs) parsons in libra 49 he wrote that he set he set this ritual to prokofiev's violin concerto number two so we will too first parsons chose a square from the anakian air tablet the great watchtower of the east each watchtower has a 13 by 12 grid as a tablet with each square having a particular meaning and use so there's this fucking grid of letters and numbers and symbols that's arranged by some schizophrenic vision Edward Kelly saw on a fucking crystal ball from some goddamn angel talking to him and John Dee. And now Jack's on drugs and he's got this tablet in front of him. Jack consecrated the magical weapons, the wand, the cup, the sword, and the pentacle. Then he concentrated the special talisman of of the operation, the air dagger. Next, Jack copied the symbols of the chosen square on divergent parchment, uh, which is, you know, untreated pulp paper. Yeah. Um... The symbols would be one of the seven planetary signs, one of the twelve zodiac signs, a permutation of the four signs of the elements, and an Anakian letter in the center. And then he began. First, Jack invoked the element of air by tracing pentagrams in in the air in front of him with the talismanic dagger. And uh, then he did the invocations of the archangels, you know, you got your Raphael, you got Gabriel, you got Michael, Uriel. Then he probably would have done the... uh, a hexagram ritual banishing the planetary energy and then invoking specific planetary energy. Then he recited the invocation of the bornless one, which is some fucking poorly translated Crowley. The bornless the one. The bornless one, yeah. Then the third key called to summon the Enochian angel Exarp of the Watchtower of Air. Then the secret name of the god of the air tablet, Oro Iba Auspi. Then more unpronounceable. Then the six seniors of the air tablet. Habioro. Oxaf. That's A-A-O-Z-X-A-I-F. Uh. Uh. 
Hello. I am the Directorial Operations Computer. Or, Doc. I regretfully must break the fourth wall here as these two silly geese have broken the cardinal rule of podcasting. You don't describe Enochian magic. No one cares. Anyone who cares hates you because you're getting it wrong. Gaboro X Sife, Tmordahozapi. What the fuck is that silly shit? Why are you doing this to these people? Audience, if you're wondering whether this misguided attempt at entertainment has accidentally called forth an elemental which may currently be speaking to you, I would advise that you do not ask questions you are not psychically prepared to have answered. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Already, in, shambles. H-I-P-O-G-T-A. You can't say him. I have no idea how to say that. It's probably by design. Yeah. <laughs> then more unpronounceable angels, all to full visible manifestation, as Jack recorded. Then the invocation of the wand with material basis. As we've already established, the phallic symbolism of rockets. Let's further observe the phallic symbol of the wand and make an intuitive leap as to what Jack might be doing with those <clears throat> tablets. Yes, Jack Parsons, out of his mind on psychedelics, most likely yelling these unpronounceable names of ruthless and disturbing angels, and then just furiously masturbating and coming all over these sigils, written on virgin parchment, while Prokofiev's second violin cherto plays in, the, plays in the background. God, it sounds so fun. All to get a girlfriend, and bring about the incarnation of the goddess Babylon. It on sounds, it sounds so, so fun. fun. It really does. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then... He, you know, in, he invoked fucking Babylon or the spirit he wished to attract, the element, not Babylon, but the elemental that he was attracting. And then he started over, did it from the start, did this twice a day for 11 days. And eventually he started using blood as the material basis. And God. then later wrote on one day the material basis needed replenishing. On January 10th, Jack was woken at midnight by nine sharp knocks. He got out of bed and saw a lamp smashed on the floor and... That should have been taken as an omen. Uh, John Carter wrote Sex and Rockets, which is probably just Kenneth Anger, uh, says that that should have been taken as an omen of misdirected magical energy. And apparently Parsons recorded that very thing in his journal, but chose to continue anyway. He's like, oh, that's a bad omen. I'm going to keep going. Ah. On the 12th, a heavy windstorm knocked up during the ritual, which Jack saw as confirmation that it was working because it was an air-based ritual. Mm-hmm. The windstorm continued through the 13th. On the penultimate day, the 14th, as Jack began working, the electricity in the house went out, and Hubbard, who was carrying a candle, remember, he's here too, was carrying a candle across the kitchen when he felt something strike his hand. Jack wrote that they saw a yellow orb floating in the kitchen, so he grabbed his magical sword and did a banishing on it, waving a fucking sword around at a brownish-yellow orb. On another occasion, Parsons said that an apparition of Wilfred Smith appeared next to him, and then immediately, L. Ron Hubbard pinned the apparition to the wall with four throwing knives. Okay. Jack wrote that in, um, I think, a letter to Aleister Crowley. Maybe it was just his journal. I hope it was just his journal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Later, Parsons heard a metallic voice in the walls with the rapping noises again saying, Let me go free. Creepy. Yeah. Now, the house had secret passageways, and L. Ron Hubbard and Betty had taken up residence across the hall. George Pendle suggests they would have been ideally positioned to stage such supernatural occurrences to further separate Parsons from reality, which is a thing we know L. Ron Hubbard kind of had a thing for. Mm. Mm. But Jack was all too willing to accept it at face value, like he did with all of Hubbard's bullshit. All the supernatural phenomena were enough for Jack to put his resentment to Hubbard aside and invite, invite him to work on further rituals with him, bring him into the, the Babylon working, oh, much man. in the same way that Edward Kelly acted as scribe for John D. Now, 
maybe Hubbard and Betty weren't just faking this because apparently all this shit really affected L. Ron Hubbard too. But following that operation, Jack was disappointed. All he got was a fucking windstorm, and L. Ron Hubbard was still fucking his girlfriend, and there was still an extreme amount of tension in the parsonage. And yet, he got no Scarlet Woman. He got no Scarlet Woman. Yet, shortly thereafter, Jack and Ron went into the desert to relax, or to conjure, or whatever, and to Jack's favorite spot, where two sets of power lines met. If you've seen Twin Peaks Season 3, take notice of that. Uh, Jack wrote that all at once, he felt the tension snap. They were like just hanging out there, meditating, doing whatever. No, we don't really know what they were doing. Jack said all at once, the tension snapped. He wrote... I turned to him and said, it is done, with absolute certainty that the operation was accomplished. I returned home and found a young woman answering the requirements waiting for me. When the two of them got back to the parsonage, Jack found a beautiful red-haired woman waiting for him. Her name was Marjorie Cameron. Excellent. One day we're going to do a full episode of Marjorie Cam- Cameron because she too is also incredibly fascinating. She uh, had, I think she was like 21. She had visited the parsonage before. She was fresh out of the, she, she was working in the Navy for like the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a cartographer during the war. Um, she was an artist, described herself as a witch. She had been to the parsonage before and although the two of them hadn't spoken, Jack asked about her later so that she wasn't like some total stranger. And Marjorie had further heard of all the weirdness going on. Uh, she wrote, end quote, all the things that were going on with he and Hubbard, the, the war that was on with Smith, which is a strange thing. I couldn't wait to get back there. I don't know anything else about a war, but she wanted the fucking bullshit magic drama and all that stuff. Yeah. Because I guess it was just like a known thing in the Pasadena community. <laughs> you know, but she was a weirdo. Uh, she initially didn't have any interest in magic, but the Parsonage wasn't really an OTO house anymore. And despite her not having any interest in magic, she and Jack began sleeping together like immediately within 24 hours and he just started teaching her fucking sex magic and was just like, you're part of this thing now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's convenient. You want to do sex magic? Here's someone to have sex with. So let's I, do this thing. You don't have any interest in magic or any of this stuff. You want to help me incarnate a God? And if you don't <laughs> have any interest in magic, you can be like, yeah, sure. Fuck yeah. Yeah. You're only going to say no if you know what the fuck he's talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> According to Marjorie, they spent two weeks in bed together as part of the next phase. And then at this point, the work of actually invoking Babylon began. Uh, and this working frayed Jack's brain in a way that has never happened before. During this time, his letters to Crowley became more and more unhinged, staccato, full of biblical exultations. Thrice blessed, I stand beyond pity or passion. My heart in the light, my eyes turn to the highest. Glory, I cry. Glory unto the beast and unto Babylon. And hail to the crowned and conquering child. And for... Must for his, be some good pussy. Yeah, and speed. Yeah. Yeah. For his part, Crowley... Uh, Crowley tried to warn Jack that he was fucking losing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wrote to Jack in, at the, uh, in March 1946. I'm particularly interested in what you have written to me about the elemental, because for some little while past, I've been endeavoring to intervene personally on your behalf. I would, however, I would, however, have you recall Levy's aphorism, uh, Eliphas Levy. The love of the magus for such beings is, ins- is insensate and may destroy him. It seems to me that there is a danger of your sensitiveness upsetting your balance. Any experience that comes your way, you have a tendency to overestimate. The first line careless, the, the first fine careless rapture wears off in a month or so, and some other experience comes along and carries you off on its back. Meanwhile, you have neglected and bewildered those who are dependent on you, either from above or from below. I will ask you to bear in mind that you have one fulcrum on all, for all your levers, and that is your original oath to devote yourself to raising mankind. All experiences, all efforts must be referred must be referred to this. As long as it remains unshaken, you cannot go far wrong. 
for by its own stability it will bring you back from any tendency to excess. At the same time, you being as sensitive as you are, it behooves you to be more on your guard than it would be the case with the majority of people. Yeah. Yeah. He's a sensitive boy. He's a sensitive boy. He's susceptible. Susceptible to outside influence and all this shit. And to inside influence. Yeah. And I mean, for the, like, I got to say, Al. I'm getting that in as many times as I can because... Because why not? You gotta. Well, you can. Um, Jack doesn't get a rocket man this episode, though. I'm not giving it to him. Yeah. Not for this one. Yeah. So, Jack paid no mind to Crowley. Um, And, like, of all people, if Alistair Crowley is telling you you're burning out, you you fucking... You're burning out. Yeah. He he eats poop. (laughs) He has... Like, no, recognizes like. Again. So while Marjorie was away in New York, Jack went out to the desert alone. And we don't know what, if any, rituals he performed out there. He um, probably came on something. He definitely came on something, absolutely. But Jack returned with his own channeled book. Ah, uh, yes. Liber 49, the Book of Babylon, which he said immediately was the fourth part of the Book of the Law. Crowley's channeled. Mm. The basis for the Lema. Yeah. Crowley barely has any respect for Jack Parsons at all anymore, right? Uh-huh. Like, he's just, like, hearing about—he's an old man in his fucking boarding house, about to die. Crowley has, like, less than two years left. Like, this dude he thought was the wonder—the fucking wonderkin. All he's getting are these letters about this this crazy bullshit that Jack's getting up to. Yeah. <laughs> and then, imagine Crowley hearing about this. Mm-hmm. Fucking— this is you know, the fourth part of the book of the law. Crowley was pissed. He was fucking. He was yeah. fucking pissed. Well, it's like you know, someone writing fan fiction and then saying this is canonically part of the original work. Yeah. However, I mean, the book of the law was. We're glad to have it. Though. I'm looking at it right now on my oh, phone. Okay. We also don't know what happened out there in that desert. We surely don't. We don't know what a channel book really is, right? There's certainly weird phenomenon that starts happening around this. And it's certainly filtered through Jack Parsons, just as the Book of the Law was certainly filtered through Crowley. Mm-hmm. Would you like to read as as Babylon, the channeled art of Libra 49? Mm-hmm. Yea, it is I, Babylon, and this is my book. That is the fourth chapter of the Book of the Law. For I am out of Nuit by Horus, the incestuous sister of Rahorkuk. It is Babylon, time is, ye fools. Thou hast called me, O accursed and beloved fool. Now that I, Babylon, would take flesh and come among men, I will come as a penniless flame, as a devious song, a trumpet in judgment halls, a banner before armies, and gather my children unto me, for the time is at hand, 
and this is the way of my incarnation. Heed. Thou shalt offer all thou art and all thou hast at my altar withholding nothing, and thou shalt be smitten, full sore, and thereafter thou shalt be outcast and accursed, a lonely wanderer in abominable places. Whoa. <laughs> Damn, Babylon. Yeah. Not all of it sucks. A lot of it's pretty good. Jackson's yeah. Poet. There's a lot in the in there that is strangely prescient about cultural forces and things that w- would happen. Um, and there's a lot of prescience about prophets being consumed in a dress of flame and shit. Mm-hmm. That seems to very clearly point to Jack's death. Yeah, it yeah. seems like a lot... There's a lot about death yes. here as I scroll through. It's, it seems like it's a lot of magical workings are about coming to a greater understanding of death and the other side. Absolutely. And Babylon is not some, I'm going to talk about it more next episode, but Jack would write a book, a 30 page essay in 1946 called freedom is a two edged sword. And it's fucking incredible. I really highly recommend everyone reading it. I'm actually, I'm gonna do an audiobook version of it. Cause I couldn't find a good one on cool. uh, just like going to upload it on YouTube because why not? It should be there. It's worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, but freedom is a two-edged sword. Liberation is a two-edged sword. Like Babylon is necessarily a god of death. She is not. She is the. I mean, well, she's she's also like men's lasciviousness, the dirtiness, the worst of everything. Mm-hmm. She is death. She is the beauty of. And death is, and is death and, ever really death, or is it just transformation? Yeah. So I just wanted to. I don't know. Uh, that's. There's some goofy shit. There's one line in there about having your, do you have my, your nose in my buttocks or something, which is really funny. Yeah. Um, but like, are you sniffing my butt? Basically it's like, ah, Jack, you, you, you funny fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Curly didn't have, uh, you know, he didn't have that, that soundtrack to the, to Libra 49 and Jackson. <laughs> and, uh, I got that, like that juxtaposition from, um, there's a, there's a, video uh on uh jason louv's youtube channel he's uh explaining the concept of the goddess uh babylon mm-hmm. and i thought it was like it was really interesting it made me like get like some concepts in thelema that i just did not understand click into place and i was like oh awesome oh weird and he like used a scene from the movie baraka as an example of the goddess and that was the soundtrack so i was like oh I'll just yeah mm-hmm. um yeah so parsons doesn't care that fucking crowley doesn't hates this. He probably doesn't know telegrams. So he's undeterred. So he comes, gets back from the desert and he became obsessed with performing even more rituals with fucking Marjorie and Hubbard. Gets addicting. Yeah. And now Hubbard's fully in Edward Kelly scribe mode, scryer mode, right? Mm-hmm. Puppet master mode. Yeah. And now these rituals, like this is like full, not really. Hubbard's channelings are quite fucking interesting. At the beginning of L. Ron Hubbard's channelings, it seems like L. Ron Hubbard is fucking having a laugh. He's thrown in dates like, oh, 4,066 4, is the year of Babylon and shit, right? It's just like, shut up, Ron. He's doing the Edward Kelly con man bit. But by the end of these sessions, Hubbard was just getting exhausted and they had to like take breaks and shit and then get back to it. And it's just started getting weird. In the presence of our Lord Pan, at the feet of Our Lady Babylon, at the feet of her servants changing, we declare unto thee this message, consecrated, dedicated, never to be defiled, is Jack's like notes, like can't quite tell what, what he's saying. The scribe was uncertain here. 
So yeah, L. Ron Hubbard didn't know what he was getting. Containing the rituals of the second and third days of the welcome and preparation in the name of Our Lady of the Night, most gracious to pure, lewd, and whoresome Lady Babylon. O thou who art mortal, tremble, given, given it is unto thee a feat never before performed in the annals of your histories, never before accomplished successfully. Many have dared, none succeeded. Our Lady Babylon must ascend to triumph. Mortality, we have not asked this of another, nor shall we ever. Even now we doubt thy faith. Is this accepted? Are you willing to proceed? Answer aloud. Answer, I am willing. Then know thou art already faulty in thy delivery. These are extraneous things. The elemental was not properly released. Uh, this was corrected. Thou wert guilty of human rage. The current of force has been disturbed. Beware, shouldst, th shouldst thou falter again, we will surely slay thee. But insofar as thy working was consecrated, it has succeeded. Rectify thy mortal fault and error. Consecrate all. Now receive the second and third rituals. Like. Cool. That sounds like the shit Jack was channeling. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe Ron was studying it in the sleep, in his sleep and shit. Yeah, they live in but close like, quarters. Does that actually matter for a thing to be coming through? Yeah. And the information that's being spun around. It. No, right. Exactly. The information's here regardless. Um, yeah. And so this goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's poetry and all this shit. And man, Crowley gets word of this. He writes, Parsons or Hubbard or someone is trying to summon a moon child. I become fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these louts. <laughs> but eventually it was done and they had decided they decided that somewhere on earth the moon child Babylon had been impregnated in some woman. Uh-huh. Goalposts have shifted a bit from Marjorie. Um these people were going fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But does that mean the rituals were worthless? Consider this. The year is 1946. We just did an episode not too long ago concerning the year 1946, the Shaver mystery. Remember I brought up Roswell in connection to that time and like UFOs starting mm -hmm. then? <clears throat> so Kenneth Grant, who was one of Crowley's secretaries, who founded the Typhonian Order of the OTO. He was friends with Austin Osmond Spare. Um, he was Lovecraft's biggest stand, etc. He points out that, you know how there are creatures associated with the elements? Uh, salamanders for fire. Yeah. Uh, gnomes for earth, sylphs for air, mm -hmm. um, undines for water. Yeah. So those were laid out by Paracelsus, some fucking old medieval dude, right? And those were old medieval style representations. What the elements are represented as doesn't matter, says Kenneth Grant. Like, it it just needs to be reflective of the culture of the time. Like, that's why right. those things were chosen. Like, today, right? I would I feel like cryptids basically fill that role. Like, Mothman is air, Bigfoot well, is earth. What Kenneth Grant said was that flying saucers were air. Yeah, those two. Mm-hmm. And fucking remember how Jack's Babylon working was all about the element of air? Mm-hmm. In 1946? Shortly after that, we have our first sightings of flying saucers. Kenneth Grant argues that flying saucers are the air elementals of the 20th century brought forth by Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard during the Babylon working. That's where that comes from. After Hubbard saw that the work was done, Jack understood that Babylon would be immaculately conceived. And so... Jack was also now certain that this ritual was done of something he had been contemplating for a long time, leaving the OTO. He wanted nothing more to do with group politics and fraternal orders at all. He was by no means done with the lema, though. He wanted to follow the route of the AA, the ecclesiastical priestly route. Um, yes. So he wrote an open letter on March 16th, uh, leaving the OTO in the hands of Roy Leffingwell, 
He wrote, In the coming months, the world approaches one of its greatest crises, and Agape Lodge may well have a basic role in, its his in this history. I hope and trust that your own part will help to make this role possible in the time when the Lodge and the world needs you most. This new aeon was to start with the end of an era. He announced that he had planned to sell the parsonage, and that anyone living there would have to move out by June 1st. So, all these scientists, occultists, writers, and Pulp Fiction fans slowly began to disperse. So, it's a new era in Jack's life. Yeah. New Aeon, if you New will. Aeon. Parsons arranged, uh, as a condition of the sale, he and Marjorie moved into the old coach house on the grounds. He gave the lodge to a dude named Roy Leffingwell and just asked his magical friends to leave him alone so he can recuperate from the whole ordeal. His plan was to get his new explosives business off the ground. You know, just in... in uh, the Vulcan Powder Company. Mm -hmm. You know, he just incarnated the goddess of the mother of abominations into the world. Yeah. Started Dynamite Company. Fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, now you might be wondering throughout all this, where's Ed? Where is Ed? I don't know. I have no fucking idea. Uh. Didn't he, he and Jack start a company together? <laughs> <laughs> well, while the Babylon working had been taking place, Jack had been persuaded to forego the Ad Astra engineering company with Ed Foreman and instead to enter a new business partnership with L. Ron Hubbard and Betty. Ah. The aim was similar to that of Ad Astra and uh, quote, to pool and accumulate earnings and profits of any nature whatsoever coming from any source whatsoever and flowing from the capabilities and craft of each of the partners. So any and all profits from the various works, L. Ron's writing, Jack's Vulcan powder company, Betty's nothing, uh, go towards what they called allied enterprises. Mm -hmm. So Jack invested um, his entire savings, $21,000, most of it from the house sale. L. Ron Hubbard also invested his life savings. It was $1,100. $1,100, not 1000 mm -hmm. <laughs> Betty did not contribute anything. Uh, Typical Betty. Yep. Jack wrote to Crowley, I think I have made a great plan, and as Betty and I are the best of friends, there's little loss. <laughs> The first thing, you got a new company, first thing you got to do, L. Ron Hubbard came up with a proposal for the company. He and Betty, they're going to travel to Miami, Florida, to buy three yachts. Oh. They're going to get some cruise. They're going to sail the yachts back through the Panama Canal and sell them on the West Coast for a much higher price. You know, L. Ron's got a naval background. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's, he's the explored. captain. Jack thought the plan was uh, practical and glamorously adventurous. And... Yeah, he signed on. Um, so he's no, going to go with them? No, no, no. Oh. Yeah, he's going to stay here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to stay at the coach house. Hubbard and Betty are going to go to Miami. Yes. Get three yachts, sail them back to the Panama okay. Canal, back to the Parsonage, pick Jack up, and then sell them so they can make a bunch uh, okay. of money. Okay, that's yeah, what yeah, they yeah. mean. Okay. Eminently practical. <laughs> Very. Um, yeah, not no one else bought L. Ron Hubbard's plan. Definitely not the OTO members. They just saw Jack giving away all his fucking money to L. Ron Hubbard and fucking Betty North. He does have a, a habit of giving mm -hmm. money to his exes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Grady McMurtry wrote that it would seem more of an adventure than a business proposition. Yeah, yeah, did very much so. Um, Jane Wolfe uh, wrote uh, to Carl Germer, I'm wondering if Ron is another Smith. Um, Crowley... <laughs> When word got to Crowley of this new and stupid development, Crowley sent one of the best telegrams, the perfect distillation. All Crowley had to say in like weirdly capitalized words mm -hmm. was, 
Suspect Ron playing confidence trick. Jack Parsons, weak fool. Obvious victim, prowling swindlers. Wow. He's he, yeah. like sending telegrams like an old person <laughs> typing on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Parsons, weak fool. Obvious victim, prowling swindler, swindlers. Prowling swindlers. Prowl, prowling swindlers. And with that, we're going to leave it for right now. Were there prowling swindlers? Yeah. Ron and Betty. Yeah. They're the prowling swindlers. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, we're okay. gonna, next week we are going to conclude the story of Jack Parsons. The fourth and final part. The fourth and final part. So thank you guys so much for listening, for following with us on this strange journey. Yes. Follow us on all the stuff. Yes, please do. Nonsense Bazaar. We're on Twitter. We're all on Instagram. Things. We're on Facebook. Also, Willow Truman. I need clout. Scroy Kennedy. We're yes. both on there too. And yeah, give us a rating. Five stars. Please. Or we'll send L. Ron Hubbard after you. <laughs> the ghost of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Even worse. It's definitely worse. Smells worse. Definitely. All, All right. right. Take care. We love you. Peace out. Bye.